Lord, we've gathered to worship you, and we've gathered, uh, we, we've come with, um, with nothing to bring but um, the empty hand uh, and the guilt and the, the lack and the need of who we are. We are so thankful, Lord, for the privilege that we can come this morning and we can lift up the cup of salvation. We can cry out for grace and help. And you will get the glory for filling us up to obey you. And Lord, I do pray that as we turn our attention to your word this morning, you would help us. And I pray that your word, as it always is, where it's united with faith, it, it is always perfect for us. And it's exactly what we need to hear. And so Lord, unite our hearts with faith as we look at your truth and as we look at your word. What an incredible privilege this is to be able to hear from you, to open your word, to see your glory. And I pray that as a result, that whatever in our life would ever compete with your glory or compete with um, usefulness or compete with um, you being pleased with us in our inner man, with our soul, with our minds, with our will, we pray, Lord, that you will expose that and give us grace to seek your face. And give us grace to forsake our sin. And give us the grace we need to honor you. We pray all of this for the glory of your Son, and we pray this for the blessing of GBC. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles, and um, this may sound a little strange, not open to the book of Mark. We're going to take a little break, and we're going to look at the book of Ezra. So if you can grab your Bible, let's start and open up to Ezra 6. And this morning, we're going to look at a section in Ezra that I, I believe is going to be a help to us, an encouragement to us. Um, we're going to look at God's path for success in our lives. Um, no one wants to fail. I think that goes without saying. Success is a universally attractive goal. For, for Christians, success is defined by our Lord. What's a successful life? What's a, a successful day? It's defined by Christ. No one, uh, not one of us wants to stand before the Lord at the end of our life and find it a failure. We all want success. So let's just consider that word success. And again, maybe I'm using it a little bit tongue-in-cheek, a little bit against the norm from our culture. But let's take that word success and consider the word success in light of the final judgment. The idea that, uh, the, the fact that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and God's scrutiny and judgment on our life is going, it's going to immediately sweep away so much junk and distraction from so-called notions of success. Because in that moment, all that matters is God saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's all that matters in that moment. GBC, we, we know that success is hitting the mark that God has called us to. He's created us and He saved us for His own glory. Um, we have 
the glorious privilege of living for Him, of dying for Him, Romans 14 says. We have the blessed privilege of putting His will above our own. We have clarity about what success looks like in His Word. God's Word lays out, by way of its statements of of fact, its, its prophecy, its commands, its warnings, its exhortations, the big picture and the detail of what success looks like. First of all, think about this. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Everything we, must, everything we do must be done for the motive of God's glory. Omri just nailed it this morning in the equipping hour. Uh, he said something along the lines of, if you're, whatever your holiness is, if you're doing it for any other motive than God's glory, you're not pursuing sanctification. And of course that verse, 1 Corinthians 10.31, is a statement about Motives for even liberties and, and uh, fr- freedoms and, and gray areas in the Christian life. And so uh, we could even go to the, the, the greatest commandment and look at one that applies universally and says the same thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. I mean, think about that standard of success. If we want a successful life, that's it right there. <laughs> Pretty simple. <laughs> simple but difficult. Simple but impossible left to ourselves. Think about that for a second. Our standard of success starts with loving God with the entirety of our will. This is a part of the definition of true success. Success would be if every inclination and every desire, every leaning and urging, urging and tendency in the control center of our, of our life, our heart, If every single inclination and bent existed for God's glory, that's not praiseworthy. That's just simply what we're supposed to do. Success would be loving God with all of our heart. Success would mean loving God with all of our soul. All of our inner man. If every inner working, if every secret faculty, uh, which in turn then determines the function of one's life, Um, If all of that existed only for God's glory, that's not praiseworthy, that's just the way that it ought to be. And so our success is defined by those two things. And then a third, how about loving God with the entirety of our mind? If, If we're going to be successful before the Lord on the last day, then the command, the standard is, love Him with all your mind. Wow. Every thought that courses through my neurons ought to exist only for the glory of God. Every thought that I think about God, myself, and His creation ought to be worthy of God because I ought to simply be thinking God's thoughts after Him. That's part of the definition of success, biblical biblical success, thinking about it on the last day. The standard for success in the Christian walk is, is very high. It exceeds our ability without exception. And man, at times we've responded to this impossibility of really succeeding. The impossibility of pleasing God on our own. And sometimes we've, res- we've responded by resorting to various, various ways we try to fit our failure into some sort of form of compatibility with the Bible. For instance, it's quite often times that men will resort to legalism. And uh, Jacob talked about this very recently in a communion meditation. 
where we might create a definition for success, and it's really nothing but a man-made standard. It would be a standard that I could actually complete and accomplish on my own. And so that's an attractive standard because then I can complete it and it's more attractive than coming under God's standards if I'm committed to accomplishing success in a way that I can get glory for it. Alternatively, men have sometimes sought to redefine success not by creating their own bar, but by dropping it. Just dropping the bar entirely. And um, this might be called uh, antinomianism. That would be the idea that uh, we just simply bask in the idea that all of our failure is just what it is and thankful that Christ has succeeded and that's success, just basking in our failure because Christ succeeded. And that's also a, a fail because it's a perversion of the gospel. It's turning grace into an excuse for disobedience, into an excuse for licentiousness. Jude 3 and 4 makes it very clear that this is a perversion of the gospel. Jude writes, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn, listen to this, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And that would be turning the, the idea of grace into permissiveness, permission to pursue my sin. So admittedly, Grace Bible Church, admittedly the standard of success is very high. And this is why success must come from God. It requires help from God. Achieving success in this life, biblically defined success, requires divine assistance, divine grace, divine favor, empowerment from God himself. And this is the way it's always been because this is the only path to success that gives God glory. It requires God working in you and through you. Otherwise, success would give you glory and not God. It's very clear in the Scriptures that the grace that gets you into Christ, the grace that gets you into the Christian walk, into the Christian life, into the church, is a profound grace. It's also very clear in the Scriptures that there's more grace than the grace given to us at our justification. And if we're going to live a successful life before the Lord, if we're going to actually find success in pursuing obedience and in being useful to the church, we need more grace. We need more grace. We need to find more favor. It's interesting, when you look at the epistles, and I'm just going to start by way of, I realize it's getting a long introduction here, but I want to just impress upon you the, the need for grace. It's interesting in Paul's epistles, how he always talks about grace in all of his epistles. And he's writing to Christians in these letters. In Romans 16, verse 20, at the end of his letter, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Be with you. He wants the grace of Christ to be with his audience. At the beginning of the letter, he says, Grace and to you and peace from God our Father. And so that's the way it goes in every letter. 1 Corinthians 1.3 Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
2 Corinthians 1, 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we can, I can just keep going. Galatians 1, 3, grace to you and peace. Ephesians 1, 2, grace to you and peace. Philippians 1, 2, grace to you and peace. Colossians 1, 2, grace to you and peace. 1 Thessalonians 1, grace to you and peace. 2 Thessalonians 1, 2, grace to you and peace. 1 Timothy 1, 2, grace, mercy, and peace. Timothy gets some mercy there. 2 Timothy 1, 2, grace, mercy, and peace from, the God, uh, from the God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Titus 1, 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Philemon 3, grace to you and peace from God the Father and, our Lord, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, not to be outdone, gets in on it. And he says in his first epistle, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Peter, Peter wants us to have the fullest measure of grace. He ends his epistle by saying, you therefore, this is, if you're taking notes, it's 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow, listen, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. We're commanded to grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We need more grace. We need more knowledge of Christ. I need to know Him more. I need more grace. Second John 3, John also starts his, one of his letters this way, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. And then, of course, in Revelation, John writing to the churches that are the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. It should be pretty clear that there is more grace to be had. And if you're a Christian and you want to honor the Lord and you want to live for the Lord and you want to you want the blessing of the Lord uh, as we all do. Sometimes it can seem elusive at times. You ever have that a season where you feel like, man, it seems like divine favor is elusive. Ezra is a man who lived a life that demonstrates how to find favor with the Lord. He's an example for us, and we're going to use, look at his life and look at it as an example of how to find favor with the Lord because the hand of the Lord was upon him and for very clear reasons as the text will show. And so I want to ask you to, Turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 7. And um, this is going to be a little bit different this morning. Obviously, it's a, it's a massive text that, I've, that I have. We probably don't even have time to read all of the text. So we're going to try to work through it in a very quick fashion. And then I want to draw some conclusions from his life to encourage us this morning about finding favor from God. What does it mean to find favor from God? And, and where is more grace to be found? Because if you ever are in a season in the Christian walk where you're where you're, you're, you're looking at your life and you're thinking, man, it seems, grace seems elusive. Um, it seems like, does God want to give me grace? Well, the answer is, of course, God, God is always ready to give grace. He, he is so lavish in his grace to his children. But the question would then come, as we look at Ezra's life, are we as dependent on the Lord as Ezra? Are we seeking out the word like Ezra did? Are we searching the face of God? Are we humbling ourselves? Are we relying on human means to 
accomplish what we think looks like obedience? Are we broken over our sin? Are we mourning over our sins? Are we confessing our sin to the Lord and to one another? That's the path to finding favor with God. Let's dive in. This will have to be quick. Let's just work through this story. We're picking it up in Ezra 7, verse 1. And I'll have to make a couple quick comments here just by way of background. But most of the background to Ezra is, is, is probably not going to have a massive impact on this text. But so that you understand the context, we are, we are going backwards in time, 2,500 years. And this is at the end of the end of the Old Testament canon. So as Ezra is a scribe, he's already on the cusp of where the prophecy, the gift of prophecy is going to terminate. And the last prophet is Malachi. And um, it's interesting, a contemporary of Malachi would be Ezra here in, in um, the traditional dating for this chapter, chapter 7, from verse 1 on, the traditional dating would be 458 B.C. And so here, Ezra is living in Babylon at the end of the exile, and the, the, the temple has already been built. That's been finished 60 years earlier under Zerubbabel, and you can read about that in chapters 5 and 6. The temple's been built, but it, it's lacking all of its adornment. It's lacking its refurbishing. It does not have enough a Levitical clan to carry out priestly function. And Ezra is sitting there, and he knows the Scriptures, and he knows it well, and God has put on his heart that uh, we need to get back to um, the Promised Land, and we need to restore worship of God as he has commanded. And so here we are, we're going to pick it up, and this, this king here in chapter 7, verse 1, is Artaxerxes. Um, traditionally, that's Artaxerxes I, and so the, um, this particular, his reign would have, this, um, so, sorry, the story here, not his reign, the story starts in 458 B.C. Verse 1, now after these things, uh, after, from 60 years prior, the rebuilding under Zerubbabel, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, and the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, and Azariah, and Meraoth, the son of Zebariah, and Uzi, and the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. You think, why all those names? That's the point right there. It is a direct lineage all the way back to Aaron, a chief priest. Priest, And so not only is uh, Ezra in the tribe of Levi, he's a direct descendant to Aaron, the, the chief priest. So verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And we'll come back to that at the uh, end here, because this is a very important verse. A scribe skilled in the law of Moses. And no doubt, as you're going to see as we, fin- as we work through this story in rapid fashion, you're going to see how tied his life is to the Word of God. That's why the hand of the Lord was upon him. And it's very explicit in this verse. The king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. The reason why what we're reading happened was not because of Ezra, but because of the hand of God. Verse 7. Some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. 
because the good hand of his God was upon him. Now I'll stop right there. Verses 7 through 9 are pretty, pretty overwhelming. It's interesting that, um, assuming the dates that I've already mentioned from verse 1, um, this would mean that, the, and, you, and then also assuming a, a regnal calendar, which if you don't know what that is, doesn't really matter, but for all intents and purposes, for all purposes this morning, it's accurate enough to say that this would likely correlate to April 8th through August 4th of 458 B.C. This journey took 119 days, including an 11-day delay that we're going to get to in chapter 8, verse 31. It's interesting that if you went between these two points as the bird flies, it would be about 500 miles. But to have to follow the Tigris-Euphrates River and then come down to the Promised Land, which was most likely what they would have had to have done, it turns out to be a 900-mile journey. And they made it in 119 days explicitly, verse 9b, because the good hand of God was upon him. It was God's favor. Well, why was this successful? Because it was God's favor. And, and, and by the way, in case there's any confusion as we're working through this story, do not imagine for a second when you keep hearing this refrain of the good hand of the Lord was upon Ezra. Do not think for a second that that means that that's an idea that you can take and just grab it, plunder it from the Scriptures, and put it on your own life, or your own heart, or your own will, for whatever desire you have, whatever suits your fancy. This is what I'm after. I want the Lord to bless me in this, so we're going to do this. No. No. The only way you can find favor from the Lord is when your goal is biblically defined as success. And So Ezra is obeying the Lord here. This is not... His idea. This is not his plan. He is blessed of the Lord, uh, and this is why it came about this way. This is why this is a the, 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 probably the greatest revival in the history of Israel. It's got to at least be up there with Solomon and Josiah. This is the revival under Ezra and under Ezra's preaching? Well, now we get a theologically. I'm going to go ahead and wet the wet your appetite here for the conclusion because notice in verse nine b. Why did they make it in 119 days? Because the good hand of God was upon him. And why was the good hand of God upon him? Now we're starting to get some explanation, even textually, why is it that Ezra found favor from God? Why was God's hand so favorably disposed toward Ezra? And this is so critical for us. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. And we're going to come back to that verse as well, but that's exactly why God's hand was favorably disposed towards him. Now, we move into a section here in Ezra 7. Um, in Ezra 7, it's a letter from Artaxerxes. Notice verse 11, it says, now this is the copy of the decree which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. And so starting in verse 12 with the word Artaxerxes, that's the quote, and it goes all the way down through verse 26. So from 12 to 26 is a, is a letter. It's written in Aramaic because it's an official decree from, um, from Artaxerxes. And so as royal... Literature, it's written in the language of Aramaic. And um, 
I dove into it this week and have a whole new appreciation for Smed's work in Daniel because it was it was it was difficult. I I, I have it was a struggle. But the point of the letter is very clear, and it's just fascinating to look at how favorably disposed a pagan king like Artaxerxes is toward Ezra. So let's just kind of fly through this. Uh, verse 12, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra, the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace. And now, I've issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you. He's just literally giving an uh, international decree to everyone under his rule, all the Jews saying, anybody who needs to go, priests, Levites, any Jew, you, need to go, you want to go back with Ezra, you have permission to go back. But wait, there's more. <laughs> For as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors, and the seven counselors would have been those who ruled um, with um, Artaxerxes, and that, that's traditionally the reality. Um, Traditionally, uh, we see that in secular history, and even in Esther 1, 13, and 14, it lists out the seven counselors of the king of Persia and Media in Esther 1, 13, and 14. And so here it's just tradition that uh, the Persian kings have seven counselors. And this decree, by the way, uh, I forgot to mention that, in this decree in verse 12, it says, uh, and now I've, I'm sorry, verse 13, and I have issued a decree, and this is a decree to go back, to rebuild, and as we're going to see, to even refurbish the temple with all of the furnishings that were had been plundered by, by Nebuchadnezzar previously, this is the decree that is quite plausibly, or quite possibly, uh, the decree referred to in Daniel chapter 9, uh, when it says a decree is going to be given. And uh, there's going to, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be 70 weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. And I don't have time to get into it, but just by way of illustration, it's fascinating, just since we're in this verse, in this letter, to just notice the timing of it all. Daniel prophesies 70 weeks, and as you can tell from the prophecy in Daniel that a week is seven years, um, Harold Honer is one author who's taken the time to work it through, even converting between uh, lunar calendars and solar calendars, and he, he, he takes it from this decree and says, yep, it arrives right there at A.D. 30, at the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry. So here's the decree. And so he says in verse 15, to bring, also to bring up silver and gold which, with, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, uh, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem with all the silver and gold which you find in the whole province of Babylon along with the freewill offering of the people and of the priests who offered willingly for the house of their God, which is in Jerusalem. I mean, this is incredible. All the silver and gold, send it back. The freewill offering to help fund this whole endeavor, raise it up. It's like a Kickstarter program uh, back in 458 B.C. And he just says, look, it's gonna be, you're not going to have to pay for this whole thing. With this money, therefore, you shall diligently buy rams and bulls and lambs, verse 17, with grain offerings, their drink offerings, and offer them on the altar of the house of the Lord your God, which is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. He goes on to talk about the utensils needed in verse 19. Talk about um, what you would need for um, all the needs for the house that you can provide for it, according to verse 20, from the royal treasury. I mean, he's footing the bill uh, in, in addition to whatever would be raised 
among those who would donate free will offerings. Verse 21, I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the provinces beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, may require of you, it shall be done diligently, even up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt as needed. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be done with zeal for the house of the God of heaven, so that there will not be wrath against the king, kingdom of the king and his sons. And now to finish up this letter, he says, We also inform you that it is not allowed to impose tax, tribute, or toll on any of the priests, Levites, singers, doorkeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. For you, Ezra, uh, you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges. So if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're getting this, Artaxerxes is now giving Ezra permission to, to set up rule on the other side of the river when they get to the promised land. Ezra's going to be personally responsible for setting up the government and establishing the society. Appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even all those who know the laws of your God, and you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of your king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of goods or for imprisonment. Talk about religious freedom. Artaxerxes just says to Ezra, you know what, you can go set up your government, you can pick out your, your magistrates, you can pick out your cabinet, you can pick out everybody who's going to rule and govern, and if they don't know the word of God, you can teach them the word of God, and you can practice it, and whoever violates God's law for your people, you can do whatever you need to do to make sure that obedience to your law is carried out across the river. Wow. No wonder Ezra responds with this blessing to God in verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord, my God, upon me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Notice in verse 28, so thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord, my God, upon me. God's hand was upon Ezra. God's hand was upon him. He was devoted. He was doing exactly what the Lord asked him to. He was devoted to God's word. And this is playing out and it starts to become even more clear in chapter 8 why the hand of the Lord is upon Ezra. Now, in chapter 8, we are going to do a major skip job just for the sake of time. Not because it's unimportant, uh, but because I can kind of summarize it here. In chapter 8, verse 1, these, uh, all the way down through verse 14, you notice that little section right there. This is a, a list of names. And just to summarize it, not that the names are unimportant or, or even the numbers are unimportant. It's, it's just that for the sake of time, I'll just say this. You have individuals descending from 15 individuals who are listed here. So there's more than 15 individuals. It's just 15 people higher up on the, on the family tree, on the genealogy. And there's multiple people listed underneath those, but they're all descended from 15 individuals. There's a considerable number of women and children, and in addition, in uh, verses 18 and 19, there's going to be 40 Levites, and uh, according to verse 20, 220 temple servants also listed. So the total comes to 1,496 people. 
You, you tally up the list in verses 1 through 14. You tally up uh, the priests and the ministers of the temple in verses 18 through 20. And the final total is 1,496. And that's the figure of men, not including women and children. So verse 15, I assembled them at the river that runs to Ahava where we camped for three days. And when I observed the people and the priests, I didn't find any Levites there. So here he is, he's about ready to launch. They've been given divine permission. Uh, God's given permission through Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes says, yep, send it and send them with all the money. And they're looking around and Ezra realizes we don't have any Levites. So I sent, verse 16, for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jarib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshalam, leading men, and for Joyarib and Elnathan, teachers. I sent them to Edo, the leading man. Edo was a Judean chief, and he's in Cassiphia. Um, Cassiphia there would have been a Levitical settlement in Babylon. We don't know the exact location, but he sends off for him. Verse 17b, I told them what to say to Edo and his brothers, the temple servants, at the place Cassiphia, that is, to bring ministers to us for the house of our God. And so he just says, send us some of your Levites. Verse 18, according to the good hand of our, our God upon us, notice, I mean, he can't even describe, and he can't even narrate the story without accentuating the fact, according to the good hand of God upon us, look at what he did. They brought us a man of insight of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah and his sons and brothers, 18 men, and Hashabiah and Jaya, I'm sorry, Jeshiah um, of the sons of Merari, with his brothers and their sons, 20 men. And 220 of the temple servants whom David and the princes had given for the service of the Levites, all of them designated by name. So they still haven't even left Babylon, but look at the blessing in the hand of the Lord sovereignly preparing Ezra for this moment. Now in verse 21, we get another theological nugget here. This becomes extremely important for the lesson we need to learn from, from Ezra's life. In verse 21, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava. Why a fast? Well, for the purpose of humbling ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. He was seeking God's face. Why was God's hand of favor upon Ezra? Because Ezra was seeking God's face. He was humbling himself before God. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way, because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and sought our God according to this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. And that's definitely one we'll come back to here in just a few minutes. But let's just continue to finish up this story. In verse 24, Ezra continues to narrate, and he explains um, that they set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, with them 10 of their brothers, and I weighed out for them the silver. And this is profound. He weighs out the silver, and he's already talked about um, how, how much was being sent in the letter from Artaxerxes back in chapter 7. So now he's weighing it out. It's all uh, collected right there at the launching point. You know, This is the Cape Canaveral uh, at the River Ahava. They're about to launch into Israel, and he starts to count out the silver, the gold, and the utensils, the offerings for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel present there had offered. He weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver, 
worth 100 talents, and 100 gold talents, and 20 gold bowls worth 1,000 derricks, and two utensils of fine shiny bronze, precious as gold. And I won't get into all of those measurements. I won't get into all what that means. If you're like me, the first time you read that, you're kind of like, I don't know, it sounds like a lot. What is that? And so here's the conclusion, and I'll just read it straight from Edwin Yamauchi. He says, for comparison, 650 talents equals 49,000 pounds, or close to 25 tons of silver. 100 talents equals 7,500 pounds. And so commenting on the sum of silver and gold in verses 25 and 26, he says, these are enormous sums worth millions of dollars. So here they are at Cape Canaveral getting ready to launch, and Ezra is weighing them out, giving them to people, and he entrusts them to people. Look at this, the security involved here, verse 28. Then I said to them, you are holy to the Lord, and the utensils are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord God of your fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leading priests, the Levites and the heads of the fathers' households of Israel at Jerusalem, in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites accepted the weighed out silver and gold and the utensils to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we journeyed from the river Ahava on the twelfth of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was over us. He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. Thus we came to Jerusalem and remained there three days. Verse 33. You guys are doing awesome, by the way. We're almost done with the story. Not the sermon. On the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the utensils were weighed out in the house of our God into the hand of Merimom, Mer, oh, sorry, Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Jezebad, the son of Jeshua, and Nodiah, the son of Benui. Everything was numbered and weighed. And all the weight was recorded at that time. The exiles who had come from the captivity offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, 12 male goats for a sin offering, all as a burnt offering to the Lord. And then they delivered the king's edicts to the king's satraps and to the governors in the provinces beyond the river, and they supported the people and the house of God. And we are going to even dip a little bit into chapter 9 and 10 in just a bit. But that's the bulk of the story of how God got the people back to Israel to establish worship in the temple, in a re revived temple. You think about this incredible undertaking. You think about what's happening here. A secular historian could look at this story and say, man, Ezra was successful. And of course, we read the scriptures and we would say, Ezra was successful for a different reason. Ezra's success wasn't divine, uh, uh, proven by what he accomplished, but by how God worked through him. What was the secret? What, what, what's, what's the common denominator for those who find favor with God? And this is true. Uh, if you want God's favor, if you want to grow in grace, if you want more grace, Seek God's Word. Seek God's Word. And I worded it that way. I wanted to word it that way instead of the, the traditional translation to study God's Word. If you're reading in NASB, if you look at Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, 
it does say study, and then the footnote says seek. And uh, maybe it's helpful to even think about it that way, to seek God's Word. To study God's Word means to seek it in this context. But let's just actually go back to verse 6. Chapter 7, verse 6. You remember this phrase here? Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of God. Skilled is an adjective which comes from a root that means to hasten. It can be even used adverbially, hastily. To fetch quickly. To hurry. And some suggestions of translation would include well-versed, experienced, speedy, or prompt. And that's an interesting connotation because the picture there is Ezra being a guy who is well-versed, experienced, speedy, prompt, hasty with God's Word. Now, hasty could have a negative connotation, but it certainly doesn't. It means ready. It means he is ready. He is raring to go. He is skilled, ready, and it's not going to take him long to get to where he needs to be in God's Word. He is somebody who is skilled in, in the law of Moses. And then the, Lord, the king granted him his request because the, Lord, the hand of the Lord was upon him. Now, skip to verse 9 and 10 again. As we saw, it's just so helpful that we, we can understand from these conjunctions how and why God's favor was upon Ezra. Verse 9b, because the good hand of his God was upon him, that's why they made it in 119 days. But why was the good hand of God upon him? Verse 10, because Ezra had set his heart. To set your heart means to, it needs to be established. Your heart needs to be established, firm, permanent, completed, arranged, and ready. If you're, going to, if you're going to find God's favor, if you're going to find more grace, you need to set your heart. You, you need to, to establish it. It's kind of like picturing uh, the difference between uh, setting up something that you think is firm in dirt versus pouring it into wet concrete. And then what happens when the concrete hardens? This is, this is Ezra's heart. His heart is cemented. That's not a translation. That's just, just an idea, perhaps, if that's helpful to think about. His heart is cemented to study or to seek out God's Word, to search God's Word. The word to study means to care for, to inquire, to inquire about, to investigate, to be intent upon. And it even means, in some contexts, to question. But not to question in, a, in, a, in an unbelieving way, but to question in the sense of, uh, scrutiny to say he's, he he would go to the God's word and and I want to I've got to know it I'm, I'm going to interrogate it I'm going to investigate it I'm going to learn from it and so he is just searching it he is seeking it he is studying it this same word is used of the Bible in uh, Psalm 111 verse two the psalmist writes great are the works of the Lord they are studied by all who delight in them great are the works of the Lord they are studied by all who delight in them. And so, the first thing he's cemented his heart to do is to do this study, this searching. Secondly, what does it mean to search out the Scriptures, to study the Scriptures? He says, he set his heart also to practice it. To practice it. This, let this purpose statement govern your study of God's Word. Your seeking out God's Word cannot be governed by anything other than practicing it. If you study God's Word for another means, you're not seeking God's Word. God's hand will not 
aid you. God's hand will not, you will not find God's hand favorably disposed towards you if you are using God's word for other means other than seeing my own heart humble, exposed, to grow. And when we keep the purpose statement of to practice it as the goal of our study of God's word, then we'll find God's favor because he's glad to help us to practice his word. Sometimes if we start looking at the Bible professionally and we start thinking about it and studying it for other reasons, he's not going to yield the richness of his word to us. He won't show us the glories of his riches in his word if our goal is not to practice it. That's Ezra's goal. That's what he set his heart upon. Finally, to teach it. That's what it meant for Ezra. Of course, now Ezra is a scribe and he's in the line of Aaron. He's a high priest. And so, of course, this might have a, a certainly the, the way that he teaches might have a different um, application for, for any of us. But it says to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. And just by way of illustration here, let's turn over real quick to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. Because here's a record of the uh, revival that happens under Ezra. And you think about the blessing of the Lord on what happens here. This is exactly what the Lord uh, wanted to do through Ezra. And so I'll just go ahead and connect some dots for you. It has nothing to do with Ezra per se. It has to do with his brokenness, his humility, his desire to study and to search God's word, his love for God's word, it's because God wanted to do it through him. It's not because Ezra was a cause of anything. All the people gathered as one man in the square, which was in front of the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. And so, literally, the light, sun, sun up till midday, sun up till noon. It's a short, slightly longer sermon than you're going to hear this morning. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, I'm sorry, Aniah. Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, um, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above the people. When he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, they explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Of course, they're reading a Hebrew text, and these people grew up in the exile, and they, they speak Aramaic. So they're translating to give the sense. And in verse 12, they celebrate 
because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Ezra's consuming hunger to know God and to know His Word is now being used to instill in, an, in a generation an appetite for God's Word to love His glory and to know His Word. So, this is critical. If you want favor with God, if you're seeking to grow in grace, seek God's Word. Seek God's Word. It doesn't happen apart from that. All of these other points are going to flow out of that point, but I'm just going to show you from the text. Maybe it's another way to say the same thing because the text says it another way, and so maybe it all explicates the point of devoting yourself to God's Word uh, so that you can find God's favor. But the second one we find is seek God's help alone. Seek God's help alone. Go back to chapter 7, verse 28. In this blessing to God for God's kindness to Ezra before Artaxerxes, he says, Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me, and I gathered the leading men from Israel to go up with me. He attributes all of this to God. He attributes the work to God, and it's God's work that's accomplishing it. But notice, it's not just that he attributes it to God. He actually is so exclusive that he will not look elsewhere for help. This is such an interesting point. Let's skip over to chapter 8, verse 21 to 23. And before we, I, I explain that, let me just give you a, uh, a caveat, if you will, as you think about applying this point. If you want more grace, don't seek anyone else's help. Okay, here I go into a circle. I'm going to isolate. No, no, that's not, that's not, what Ezra, that's not the point of Ezra 8, 21 to 23. Uh, the Bible gives us all sorts of means of growth and growth in grace. Uh, and, and there's no means of grace outside of what God says in His Word. But inside of His Word, there are plenty of means of grace that involve uh, seeking help, even from other people inside the church. And so that's not what it's talking about. It's not saying isolate. What it's saying is not finding a way outside of God to try to accomplish His ends. You rest entirely on the Lord. Verse 21, 8.21 I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. And so he declares a fast. They stop, they go without food, presumably. You can technically, you know, you, find, you can fast from certain things in the Scriptures. Usually, it's food. And of course, you humble yourself by doing that because it's a reminder of a couple things. First of all, your own weakness. Because if you don't eat, you get weak. And that sounds kind of counterintuitive. We're about to embark on a 119-day journey. I got an idea. Let's not eat and get strong. The other thing that it does is it starts to show you how strong some of our natural appetites can be. And it's a reminder that our natural appetites can often be inordinate and to say, I need my appetite to rely on the Lord to be stronger than any other appetite. And so they humble themselves before the Lord. And it explains in verse 22, I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way. And you, you read that first half of verse 22, and you know, I'm thinking after, that letter, the, the, excuse me, after the letter we just read in chapter 7, it's almost like, well, he's so favorably disposed towards you, 
Why wouldn't you just ask for some military help? Why wouldn't you just say, hey, we got a lot of enemies between us and the temple. Can you help us out and can you give us some physical protection? Here's why. I, I was so ashamed to ask because we had already said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. That all those who forsake him would be those who would be opposed, any enemy to the people of God from getting back to the temple to worship, that would be those who are opposed to him, so God's power and anger would be against those. But if God's hand is favorably disposed to all who seek him, well then, to turn around and go to a king looking for help would start to bring question onto whether God's favor is enough. Sometimes we cut ourselves off from grace because we're afraid that is God's favor going to be enough for me? What if things don't turn out the way that I would like them to? Why wouldn't I trust the Lord? Why wouldn't I appeal to Him for grace? And if I'm worried about circumstance and I'm worried about outcome, then just obey the Lord. Obey the Lord. So, we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter. And He listened to our entreaty. Of course, we're not going to find grace if we look outside of God and His means and a provision to accomplish His will. And it goes without saying, but just to remind what I said earlier, we are not going to find grace regardless of where we're going, if we're, our goal is outside of God's will. So that's the only thing we're talking about, is pursuing God's will, God's biblical definition of success. I will not be able to get there if I'm looking for help and means of getting there outside of God and His will. In the remaining minutes, we have, we have two more, so I'll, I'll just give them to you here. The third one is tremble at God's word. And this one I was going to appeal to, chapter 9. In chapter 9, just to explain the scenario, they're established in the promised land and some of the people who came back started to intermarry with women in the promised land. And of course, the issue is not race. The issue is intermarrying with unfaithful people who dwell in the land. So their pagan practices are part of the immediate culture that they find themselves in. And that's the problem, of course. And you can go back and read about that in the Torah. But they're violating that. And so Ezra hears about this in verse 3, when I heard about the matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of my hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. And look at this, then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me and I sat appalled until the evening offering. He's trembling at God's word. Isaiah says, this is the one to whom I will look, to him who is broken and contrite and trembles at my word. Think about the words of Isaiah 57, verse 15. This has been a critical verse to think about in light of what happens if we are not trembling at God's word and if we are not broken and contrite. This goes perfectly with Isaiah 66 too. Thus says the High and the Exalted One who lives forever, whose name is Holy, I dwell on high, uh, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Who, who, who does God look to? Who does He give favor to? He gives favor to the individual who is broken and contrite. 
That's who he gives favor to. So Ezra and those who were broken gathered. And the fourth point is also in chapter 9. They mourned over their sin. In 9 verse 5 through 9.15, Ezra prays a prayer. And in this prayer, you can tell in the expression that they are they're appalled at their sin. They're, they're grieved about it. And you can tell in chapter 10 that they act on it. They actually put away the wives that were illegitimate to marry in the first place. This is a display of what Ezekiel says would happen when God pours out His Spirit on people. They will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations. That's Ezekiel 6.9. Ezekiel 20, verse 43, you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evil that you've done. And Ezekiel 36.31, you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. And you know, you know you're grieved over your sin when, when confession comes out effortlessly in prayer. And even when it's not effortless. When you know this, this, the, Lord, the Lord needs to hear this. because I, 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 It's not pretty. It's not pretty. And I've got to tell the Lord. It may not be as articulate as Ezra. It doesn't matter. What he finds attractive is the brokenness, the contrition, the grief, and the, the appalling nature of my sin against the Lord. And so to close, as we are getting ready to sing our final song, I want to just pray this prayer, Ezra chapter 9, and uh, just make this our prayer as we close this morning. Ezra prayed, Oh, my God, and I'll try to pray this in the plural, Lord, we are ashamed and embarrassed to lift up our face to you, uh, my God, our God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of our lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, our, our God, what shall we say after this? We have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which, which have filled it from end to end with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons. Never seek their peace or their prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has come upon us for our de- evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requ- requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with people who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. 
Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. Lord, this is certainly a very helpful prayer because Ezra just so helpfully articulates the right perspective that we must have in response to our sin. Thank you so much, Lord, for being infinitely gracious. And your favor comes so quickly to those who are broken and contrite. And so, Lord, I pray that we would long for brokenness and contrition and that we would long for your favor, that we would long for clarity from your word and that we would long for uh, humbling, that we would seek your face, that we would tremble at your word and, and be terribly gripped, consumed by the thought of violating what you've said or dishonoring you in any way or hurting those around us that we love the most. And, and Lord, our, our, our sin is, obviously it makes us guilty as Ezra said, it, 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 would put our, it puts our guilt above our heads um, impossibly high and no one could stand before you. And so Lord, we come to you seeking for great grace because Lord, we, um, we see how quick you are to give grace. And so for any this morning who might be tempted to think that grace can't be found, or that if they went to you with their sin, and if they realized their need to be devoted to your word, and if they realized their need to humble themselves before you, that you would not help them, and you would not help them arrive at uh, greater clarity, greater usefulness, greater holiness, greater humility. I pray that they would see that's not the case. That there's grace to be had. And thank you, Lord, for being so good to all your children. In your name we pray. Amen.